So moment of transparency. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to start in a little bit of a weird way this morning. <laughs> Usually I uh, have, you know, funny quips and nice, lovely stories and, and everybody, I mean, they're hilarious. Okay, no. <clears throat> Thank you for at least quasi-laughing on cue. Um, we're going to kind of dispense with that stuff today because we got tons of scripture content to get to. Um, and because moment of transparency, as I sort of alluded to earlier, I'm swamped right now. Um, I just come back from vacation. And when you come back from vacation, everybody's like, you're so rested. I'm sure you had a wonderful time. Everything's going to be, you're going to have an amazing sermon today, right? Yes, we are. We're going to have a great sermon today. um, But we're just going to have to like jump into the text because I don't have like everything set up on a nice plate so that by the time we get to the text, you're like, oh, please tell us, Scott. This is a, I've got meat for you on the grill. Don't worry. But it's been a busy week. There's a lot going on in this congregation. Uh, And I am just, honestly, I'm totally swamped. And I flat out didn't get the sermon done as much as I like. Or as much as perhaps you're used to. If you're new with us, um, this isn't a a typical way to start. Now, don't worry, those of you who are like, I feel the goofy tension of him not being ready and apologizing. Don't worry. The sermon is done enough. It's really actually pretty well cooked, honestly. We have meat on the grill today. And it's not like I picked up chicken nuggets and a $5 pizza on the way here, okay? Our entree today is meat, maybe not a filet or a Chateaubriand, uh, but at least it's a decent strip, okay? The presentation on the plate was a little less than amazing. There's no whet your appetite stories at the beginning. So, so I'm saying all that because what I'm saying is I'm handing you a knife and fork because we're going to get straight into cutting into the meat of the text today, okay? So I'm saying that as a way of thinking, listen, you're going to have to make a decision right now in your heart and on your mind to engage with the text. <laughs> I'm not going to be sitting up here going, hey, la-da-da-da-da-da, isn't this interesting? Now let's get into the text. Okay? This is, you've got the knife and the fork, let's get into the meat. Okay? So turn to chapter 1 of Mark, where we look at some overview that will help us with Mark 13, uh, when we get there, we need to have sign a, kind of an overview of what's been going on up to this point in some measure to understand what's going on in Mark 13 when we get there. Mark tells us at the very beginning of his gospel, of his gospel account, that Jesus came, and here's the key, to announce the coming of the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus came, to announce the coming of the kingdom of God. Now look at verse 15 in chapter 1 of Mark. The first words out of Jesus' mouth indicate that the gospel is about the announcing of the coming of the kingdom. It says this, verse 15, chapter 1. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The first words out of his mouth. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here in front of you. You can touch it because I'm here announcing it and I am the Messiah. It's here available for you. The kingdom of God is at hand. So, repent Turn from sin and toward, toward me. Repent and believe in the gospel. So, Jesus begins preaching. <laughs> begins preaching, announcing the coming of the kingdom, casting out demons. In other words, proving that his message was legit. 
and that he was worth following. And the people responded in kind, not all of them, but enough that this is what Mark says in Mark 1.27. The people respond to Jesus announcing the coming of the kingdom, proving his authority. And they say this, what is this? <laughs> a new teaching, a new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. The people were taken with Jesus because he was the real deal. Now, the Jewish religious establishment wasn't so taken with Jesus. Uh, The Jewish religious establishment, the powers that be, didn't exactly take kindly to what the people called this new teaching. And they perceived Jesus as a threat to their authority. So, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, when he enters Jerusalem at the beginning of chapter 11, you may know that as the triumphal entry, when he does that to to really to take over the temple, to undo the temple, he doesn't get the red carpet from the Sanhedrin. He doesn't get the red carpet from the Jewish religious authorities. He gets palm branches from the people. This is a telling symbol of who was acknowledging Jesus' authority and who wasn't. Many of the people believed in him. Not all, but many of them. But most of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, did not. Because they saw that what he was doing, proving the coming of the kingdom of God by casting out demons, by not just teaching with authority, but demonstrating his power and authority, meant that they perceived him as a threat. The people saw him as the real deal. So the Jewish religious establishment, the powers that be, didn't exactly take kindly to the new teaching. So when he enters the temple in chapter 11, he gets a welcome from the people, but not from the Jewish religious authorities. Now, turn with me back to Mark 13. With some of that overview in mind, we're going to see that at the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus continues to challenge the temple, to take on its authority. In fact, what he's doing is radically different than anything that has happened before. Let's let's put some color to that. Look at this in verse 1. Mark 13, the first little phrase there. There are a couple places here in Mark 13 where it looks like, eh, just kind of telling us about what Jesus is doing or where he's going. But there's actually a lot packed into that first little phrase there. This is the first of those two places. It says, and as he came out of the temple. Mark makes here what at first seems like a simple statement (laughs) about Jesus physically leaving the temple. Like a simple geography kind of statement. It's clear, though, that Mark is actually making a subtle but very definitive statement about Jesus leaving the temple, not just in a physical way, but he's leaving in a spiritual way. Jesus is breaking ties with the temple here. He's shaking off the dust of the temple from his feet. Mark has already been hinting at this in the text way before this in the last few chapters, this tension between Jesus and the temple. For many chapters before this, three times in chapters 8, 9, and 10, Jesus predicted his own death at the hands of the Jewish and the Gentile leaders whose very power and authority were tied to the temple. You can see that in 8, 9, and 10 toward the end of each of those chapters. In chapter 11, two chapters before this, Jesus very publicly and forcefully 
He has a whip in his hand, <laughs> counters the authority of the religious leaders, the ruling body of the Jewish people who allowed the temple to be used in ways that it should not have been. Jesus goes in and clears house and says, this is corrupt. I mean, do you see what you're doing to this place? Very confrontational, kind of a, a prophetic act that he does there. And of course, he does that in the temple. In that encounter in chapter 11, Jesus calls the temple a hideout for thieves, a den of robbers, a place that breeds those who counter the reason God created the place for his own glory in the first place. He says the temple has become like a fig tree that doesn't bear fruit anymore. And this tension between Jesus and the temple had been brewing for quite a while before we get to Mark 13. In chapter 12, the Sanhedrin comes to challenge him, and he brings it right back. All three of the groups, Mark points out, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, all three parts of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. In fact, Jesus' judgment of the temple was well enough known, not to the Jewish leaders, but to the common folk and to the other leaders that it played a significant role in his death. Look at Mark 14:58 here, which we'll put on the screen. Thank you. We heard him say, this is a, a false witness who, who says this, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. He, he said that. And they knew he said that. In Mark 15, 29 to 30, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Jesus is on the cross. And those who mocked him says, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. I mean, think about this. Why would the veil, the temple veil, that kept the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, why would that be torn when Jesus dies on the cross? It's the Spirit of God demonstrating in power that it is breaking free from a corrupt system and structure that had lost its bearings. Now, what I'm saying today is, honestly, it's a little uncool to say nowadays. It's a little uncool to say among some Christians and some theological types uh, that there's this discontinuity and tension between Jesus and the temple. And part of that's because the more we know about the Jewish roots of the Christian faith, the more we understand that there is some continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. But there is still quite clearly some discontinuity, some difference between what Jesus was saying and doing and what the Jewish faith had generally become by the time we get to Jesus. By the time we get to the first century, Jesus didn't come merely to show us how to fulfill the law for ourselves through the flesh. He came to fulfill the law for us so that we would not be under the law that condemns, but that we would have the spirit that brings us to life. So in verse 1, getting back to the text, <laughs> in verse 1 of Mark 13, when Mark says that Jesus came out of the temple, it's like he's saying, listen, Elvis has left the building. Never to return. This would be the last time that he was in the temple. He was leaving for good. Keep reading. Let's see why Mark says this so definitively. 
And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples, we don't know which, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. <laughs> this temple is so cool, right, Jesus? I mean, how cool is this place? It's huge. Frankly, it, it was cool. In Jesus' day, uh, the temple had already been under construction for 50 years, but it was unfinished at this point. Long story short, uh, the temple was becoming this huge, immense, gargantuan place on a scale the world had never seen up to that point. Grandiose in a way that dwarfs what we know of worship spaces today. Just the outer court of the Gentiles, just the outer court measured 500 meters long by 325 meters wide, which is five and a half football fields long and three and a half football fields wide, which is 19 football fields in one space. 40 acres, which lots of scholars thought would hold at least two, perhaps 300,000 people on the highest Jewish feasts like Passover for the week. Huge. Some of you will experience as you leave this place a lobby that holds a couple dozen. This place was huge. And they came out of this temple enamored with how cool it was, how big it was, how much how much power and authority it seemed to represent. So he says, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. What's truly remarkable here is Jesus' response. Look at verse 2. Jesus says, see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. (laughs) One of his disciples talks about how amazing the temple is. And Jesus is like, meh, temple shmemple. The whole thing's coming down anyway, which would be true in AD 70. It would come down. So he says this in response to the disciples ooing and aahing about this grandiose place, which, which was a place of power and authority. And Jesus says, meh, no big deal. You've got to understand what a radical and crazy thing this would have been for Jesus to say to the Jews. I mean, the temple was at the very heart of their identity as a people and as a nation. It's where animals were sacrificed to cover their sins. The temple meant everything to them. There were places in the Old Testament, a few places where it said, there's no temple in the land. Therefore, we don't know who we are and we don't know who's going to cover our sin. We can't have a relationship with God without this place called the temple. And this was huge. And for Jesus to say, it's all coming down anyway. It's a radical statement about who Jesus was and what he was really coming to do. What Jesus is ultimately saying here is the way of life as you've known it, the way of of relating to God is going to fundamentally change. Which is why we're calling this series subversive king. Friends, Jesus didn't come to help you carry on life as before. He came to so fundamentally and radically change you that who you are after is is different, altogether new. We would say, by the Spirit, alive when you were dead. I mean, it's that kind of discontinuity from what he's calling into question, which is this corrupt temple system He's standing there saying, listen, you don't need a temple. I am the temple. 
Jesus is saying, I am how you get right with God. So this is a radical departure from everything they knew. He was saying, this place, which was created by God, to be filled with his people who are filled with his spirit so that they would be a witness to the nations has instead become fruitless and a hindrance to knowing God. It had become a stumbling block to knowing God. Which is why Mark states verse 3 this way. And it's another one of these statements that looks like it's just about geography, but there's a lot more going on in what Mark's saying. Look at the first half of verse 3. They've come out of the temple. He says, meh, temple shmemple. They go to the Mount of Olives. It says this, verse 3. He sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Press pause again. Spend some time here. The Mount of Olives looked down on the temple. It was said that from the vantage point of the Mount of Olives, you could actually look straight down into the entrance of the actual sanctuary and look into it. In the first half of verse 3 here, Just look at the first half there. There's another statement that in verse 1 has a lot of meaning beyond the first glance. This is another one of those kinds of statements. And here's why. In the immediately preceding story at the end of chapter 12, Jesus prays the faith. We talked about this last week. He prays the faith of the poor widow who gave out of her poverty. She gave more than the wealthy who gave out of their abundance, Jesus said. In, in that story, Mark says that Jesus sat down opposite the treasury. Two things about that. Number one, sitting down is the proper posture of a rabbi when he sits to speak with authority. In, in fact, the disciples would sort of lay in a lower position as a, as a demonstration of, I'm here to listen, to sit under the teaching of the rabbi. So for the rabbi to sit down was significant. It was a posture of authority. Second thing, it says he sat down opposite the treasury. This was a statement about Jesus' authority and his posture when it came to the treasury. He was opposed to the corrupt system that had lost its purpose. Mark uses the same exact kind of wording here in chapter 13, in verse 3. But here we find Jesus sitting opposite the temple. So he says he sat down on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, which is not just a statement about geography or place. It's a statement about his posture when it came to this issue of authority. He sits opposite of what had become a corrupt system. So, verse 3, keep reading. He sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew, since he's obviously in a teaching mood, he's sitting, he's opposed to the temple. They are reading that. They get it. They say, hey, tell us. (laughs) You who are obviously in a teaching mood, when will, now notice this phrase, these things be? When will these things be? And what will be the sign? When all these things, there's that phrase again, these things are about to be accomplished. (laughs) Now take a deep breath and listen closely. Try to say this clearly. There's a lot of information here. The disciples are obviously asking about the destruction of the temple 
because of the immediately preceding context. I mean, they ask, when will these things be? He's just said the temple's coming down. And they say, when will these things be? But later in our passage, which we'll get to next week and we'll talk about in the next uh, part of chapter 13. But starting in verse 14, when it begins to say those days, it's super important to know that those days are different than these things. It's a trigger Mark uses in the text to help us understand he's talking about this time now. Then he'll talk about those days then. Then he'll go back to these things now, and then he'll go back to those days then. So that's the basic structure of all of chapter 13. These things now, meaning after Jesus comes the first time, this is what life will be like for my followers. These things are that. (laughs) Those days are then, before Jesus returned the second time. See the basic distinction there, okay? Back to these things. But unlike the disciples here in verse 4, who are only talking about the destruction of the temple, Mark, writing after, and Jesus, are also using these things to refer not just to the destruction of the temple, which did happen in AD 70, but also to refer to the time after Jesus leaving when the disciples would have the Holy Spirit. He uses their question about the destruction of the temple as an opportunity, and this is a key here, as an opportunity to teach about how to behave after Jesus leaves the first time when trouble hits, when life is hard, when it's just you and the Holy Spirit, when I'm not here to to sit over you and have you sit under me. So in basic terms, in the structure of this passage here, these things are about the now after Jesus leaves, and those days are about the not yet before Jesus returns. Clear as mud? We'll see this pattern throughout the entirety of chapter 13, uh, but today we're just talking about these things. So these things here are about the now after Jesus leaves, and those days are about the not yet before Jesus returns. And we'll give it another little twist on that in just a minute here, because Mark 13 is confusing. So here's where we are up to this point. What cool buildings, Jesus. Meh. Temple Schmemple, it's all coming down anyway. Okay, so when will these things be and what will be the sign that they are accomplished? They want specifics. They want to know the timeline. They want to know the schedule. They want to know when they see it, right? Like They're like typical Christians who are like, give us a timeline, Jesus. But his response is basically no dice, no timeline. Look at verse 5. Jesus began to say to them, began to say to them, this is the beginning of what we call the Olivet Discourse, see keyword see that no one leads you astray the very first thing jesus says in response to their question about tell us when these things will happen what will be the sign is see that no one leads you astray if i'm one of the disciples and i ask hey jesus when will these things happen and what will be the sign of their accomplishment and he says see that no one leads you astray i'm thinking he didn't hear the question or or i'm feeling like oh i'm sorry jesus Do I need to ask the question a different way? Because it seems like you didn't hear what I actually asked. (laughs) That happens a lot with Jesus. They'll ask one thing, and they think they know what they need to hear, but he'll say, here's what you actually need to know. That's what happens a lot when we talk about end times. We ask questions. He often doesn't care about answering. 
But he did, of course, hear the question. He just has a different agenda than they do. The disciples walk out of the temple. They're enamored with it. Wow, how cool. Temple schmemple. It's all going down. So tell us, what do we do? (laughs) Would be a version that they should have asked. And he says this, verse 5. He began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. If you're a circler, a note taker, circle that word see there in verse 5 because it's an important word. It's a key interpretive word or concept for the whole passage, for the entire chapter. This word see here is translated in my version, the ESV, as see. Uh, If you have the NIV, it probably says watch out. Uh, The idea with this word see is to keep your eyes open, to have them open, to be on guard. And he's playing off of what they say in verse 1, which is see all this, look at all this. Wow, they're wide-eyed about the temple. And Jesus says, look instead, look instead that you are not deceived. Stay awake, watch out, be on guard. Jesus wants to turn their wide-eyed wonder at human achievement into focus on the work of God that is actually going on all around them if they'll look. That's a key. That's a key. So this word see here that Jesus uses in verse 5 is the same word used in verse 9, 22, and 33. So four times in the chapter, it says, be on guard, be on guard, be on guard. In the last six verses of the chapter, as a variation on this theme of keeping your eyes open, Jesus says the same kind of thing but in a slightly different way when he says, stay awake, don't fall asleep. He says it five times in six verses. And here's the thing that we need to know. He says to do this to see, to watch out, to keep awake, to not fall asleep. He talks about that in various ways all throughout the chapter as a way to refer to how we act both in these things now and in those days then. This is key. We think that staying alert, that keeping awake has something to do with just this those days then kind of thing. Oh, Jesus is coming. Then we should be awake. Jesus is sitting here going, I've come. Wake up. The work of God is here today. The kingdom of God is at hand. Salvation is available today. Jesus announces in the gospel. So he says, keep awake, because there's work to be done here now. Not just into those days. So here in verse 5, he introduces this concept of looking out, watching out, being on guard. He says, watch out to see that no one leads you astray. Because, verse 6, many will come in my name. In the these things, in the here and now, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. You will hear of rumors of wars and rumors of wars, but do not be alarmed. This, meaning these things, after Jesus leaves, must take place, but the end, meaning those days before Jesus returns, is not yet. Like we're talking about these things and not just those days. So don't get lost in someday and signs for then, when there's work to be done now, keeping one's eyes open. For, verse 8, For, in these things, after Jesus leaves, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. 
Maybe lots of earth-shattering apparent signs and events. Supposed reasons to be alarmed. He says, but even in the here and now, the, these things, the after I leave, don't be alarmed. These, as in these things and not those days, these are but the beginning of the birth pains. And Jesus is beginning to talk to them here about the kinds of struggles that they'll face after Jesus left the first time. He says, don't be deceived, don't be distracted, don't be caught sleeping, keep your eyes peeled. Verse 9, be on your guard. For, again we're talking about these things, we don't talk about those days until verse 14, that's next week, for they will deliver you over to councils. Jesus would soon be standing trial before the council, and he knew that they would as well. For they will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Everything Jesus has said at this point happened soon after he left the first time. This wasn't just metaphorical language. All of these things actually happened to the believers who were there after Jesus left. And here's why he forewarns them. During the these things, after I leave, verse 10, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Listen, verse 10 is not simply a statement of a timeline about what has to happen before Jesus returns. It is that. But it is also a statement about our first priority the first things, the don't get wrapped up in everything else because this is what's meant to happen after I leave. This is job one. (laughs) You ever see all those pictures online with you had just one job? (laughs) Like you had one job and you see, you know, the the line on the, on (laughs) the side of the road go around something that's sticking out. It, you had one just straight line. We're so often going around things when we're just a straight line. You had one job. You had one job. Don't be distracted about signs. Make sure verse 10 is happening, that the gospel is first being proclaimed. So keep your eyes peeled to join the work of God. This is what Jesus is saying here. Keep your eyes open to join in the work of God that is happening today. He adds some interesting verses here uh, that help us understand if we're doing the work of God. You'll know you're doing the work of God if you experience my sufferings. That's what Jesus is saying here. You'll know that you're doing the work of God if you experience in some measure my sufferings. Look at verse 11. When they bring you to trial and deliver you over, he's saying this is the norm, this is what will happen. Do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. Like this is normal persecution of believers. Do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. Because in that moment, say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Let me summarize a bit of a confusing statement there by just saying this. Uh, God can use your imperfect words for his perfect purposes. God can use your imperfect words 
for his perfect purposes. So, so trust in that. You want a sign? Jesus says you want a sign? The sign is, is this is what's going to happen when I leave. This is, going to, this is going to be what happens when I leave and when the gospel is genuinely and authentically proclaimed in the lives of my believers. Verse 12, brother will deliver brother over to death. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. And then he closes by saying this, but the one, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let me summarize by saying this. Those who endure to the end are those who have their eyes open to join in the work of God in the these things. In the here and now. Let me say that again. Those who will endure to the end are those who have their eyes open to join in the work of God in the here and now. The simple question, the simple application question for us all is, do you have your eyes open to join in the work of God in the here and now so that you will be one of those who endures to the end? Because, because it's not like there's just of those days with the work of God someday. I think we approach our lives so easily like someday when I've got my finances in order, someday when I've paid off the such and such, Someday, I sound like I'm just giving my own things. Someday when I have my behavior right, when I know enough scripture. Listen, the Christian life is a life of readiness to enter into the work of God that has already been going on and hasn't stopped and will keep going. The question isn't whether or not God's working. The question is if we are alert enough to see. If we are ready to engage. There was an Air Force pilot at the end of the first Iraq war. He had flown about 300 missions. And uh, it was the end of the war and he was Surprised at that moment that he was given permission to immediately pull his crew together and fly the plane home. And so they immediately flew across the ocean to Massachusetts and then had a long drive overnight to western Pennsylvania where he was from. And they drove the whole night and, and, and his buddies dropped him off in his driveway at his house just after the sun had begun to come up. And he was surprised to, to come up and there's this big banner on his house that says, Welcome home, Dad. His first thought is, <laughs> how in the world did they know? Like no one had called. He barely knew himself. The crew hadn't even expected it. They were told, you leave now. The pilot says, when I walked into the house, running down the hall to me were my kids who screamed, Daddy, Daddy. His wife came running down the hall. She, she, she looked terrific, he said. Her hair was fixed up. Her makeup was on. She had a crisp yellow dress. It was the beginning of, of the day. He said, how did you know? How did you know I was coming back? She said, well, I didn't. I had no idea when you were coming back. All I knew is that once the war was over, I knew you'd be coming home one of these days soon. We knew you would try to surprise us. <laughs> 
So we just made sure that we were ready at the beginning of every day to welcome you home. Friends, the question is, are we ready? Are our eyes open to join in the work of God? You know, it's easy to, to look at the things on the outside, at the, the apparent stuff, maybe you know, band stuff here, talking into a mic to think. All this sort of rigmarole and, and, and packaging is something to be enamored with. But listen, God does work in the lives of people's hearts today. And that's never going to change. And the question is, do we have our eyes open to join in the work of God in the here and now so that you will be one who endures to the end? Do you have your eyes open to join in the work that has been happening since Jesus came in flesh and blood to prove that God wants a forever relationship with us? Let's pray. Father in heaven, in the quiet of this moment, we admit before you and to ourselves that we live as if readiness is contingent upon our human efforts. We live as if you're not already working. We ask, Father, that you would correct our thoughts, that you would change our hearts. Uh, We ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes so that we would be men and women who have joined in the work you're doing to proclaim the gospel to the nations. Lord, that's an amazing task. And what happens in that work is that you, through the person of Jesus, make available a forever relationship. That you give us, on our account, the credit of Jesus' perfect and sinless life. A credit we could never deserve and that we could never earn. And by giving us Jesus and His righteousness... You assuage your wrath. You undo for us the anger we deserved from you for being sinners who shook our fists at you. So Lord, we give you praise and we give you glory and we give you thanks for giving us Jesus who is for us the way to a relationship with you. Who is for us in flesh and in blood, covering for our sin. We thank you for his once-for-all sacrifice. We thank you that he came to be the temple. For in his work, you've enabled us to work through the spirit that you give to us. 
You make our work work, not because we're adequate, but because you are adequate. Because the Spirit is working through us. So Lord, we give ourselves to that task. We ask for the courage and the strength to keep our eyes open. We acknowledge, Lord, that we call matters of wisdom often things that are matters of courage. We know what it is to do the right. Give us the strength and the faith and the courage to step into the kind of life that keeps our eyes open to join in the work you've done because you've made forever relationship with you available. We love you for that. Give us the strength to join that work. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So it's 11.48, which means um, we are short on time. So let me say this quickly. Uh, We have what we call here a time of invitation. It's a response to the good news that we just heard about in the scriptures and prayed about. Um, If that's true, if Jesus came in flesh and blood, then it demands the kind of response um, that would mean our whole lives being given to him. So wherever you are in your journey with the Lord, we'd ask for uh, you to make that kind of response. Whether you've known Christ for a long time or this relationship with Jesus thing is something you're not sure about. Uh, Maybe today is a day where you say publicly for the first time, Jesus is my righteousness that I couldn't earn. And so so I lay on him the sin that I can't make up for myself. Maybe today is that day for you where you publicly for the first time say that. The waters of baptism, which demonstrate the death to the old way of life and being raised to the new life, is a way to publicly proclaim that faith. Uh, maybe today is the day for you to join a church family where uh, we covenant with you for your growth and you for ours. Um, so that the work that God's already been doing through his people ever since Jesus came would continue in us. To be a member is to just say, as a baptized believer, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And among a family of believers uh, to join with us for your growth and ours. So the invitation is there for us all as we stand and as we sing together.